0: Welcome to episode number one of Calm History. This is a spotlight episode featuring the history of rubber and the major contributions of Charles Goodyear. I'm Harris, and I created this podcast to bring you the conflicts, the discoveries, the tragedies, and the triumphs of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. You can learn more about my other podcasts and vote on the future of this podcast by going to silkpodcasts.com or use the link in the episode notes. Alright, here are some questions I'll answer as I tell you about the history of rubber. Where does rubber actually come from? What did native peoples use rubber for? What were the first commercial uses for rubber? Why were some of the first commercial uses a total failure? What roles did Daniel Webster, Charles McIntosh, and Charles Goodyear play in the history of rubber? Why did Charles Goodyear go to jail? And why did he go to court so many times? Did Charles Goodyear become a rich man? And I'll finish with a quote from Charles Goodyear so you can hear him summarize how he viewed his own life. Okay, time to begin today's historical tale. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. The Story of Rubber. One day in 1852 in Trenton, New Jersey, two lawyers appeared in the circuit court of the United States. These two men were the legal giants of their day. They were there to argue the case of Goodyear versus Day for infringement of patent this was the patent for turning raw rubber into vulcanized rubber, which led to its widespread commercial success. Daniel Webster was the lawyer who represented Charles Goodyear, and Rufus Choate represented Horace Day. Goodyear and Day were in dispute as to who was the inventor of the process which put rubber into the service of the world. I'll return to this court case later in this episode, but first I must tell you about the other party important to this historical case. That other party is the rubber plant itself, or rather rubber gum plants, which may be trees or vines that produce the raw gum, which can be converted into the substance we call rubber. These rubber gum plants grow in areas of North America, South America, Africa, and other places. Many believe though that the best wild rubber was sourced from trees near the mouth of the Amazon River in Brazil. The methods for acquiring raw rubber gum in Brazil didn't really change much for 500 years. The natives used canoes on watercourses to reach the trees deep in the jungle. They cut V-shaped or spiral incisions in the trunks of 60-foot trees. At the base of the incisions, they affixed small clay cups like swallow's nests. They would return later with large gourds to collect the fluid from the clay cups. The filled gourds were brought to their village where they then built their smoky fires of oily palm nuts. Dipping their paddles into the fluid gum They would turn and harden it, one coating at a time, in the thick smoke. When the desired thickness had been attained, the hardened rubber was cut from the paddle with a wet knife. So what did these early pioneers of rubber do with it? Well, in 1493, Christopher Columbus was about to find out on his return trip to the Caribbean. The Caribbean was another place that natives harvested and cured the gum from rubber trees. Christopher Columbus and many of his men were visiting a section of Hispaniola or modern-day Haiti for a second time. His men had brought wind balls from Europe to play with in the idle hours. These wind balls were usually made from an animal bladder, and wrapped in leather. They were called wind balls because they were inflated with air. However, the men found the local balls of Haiti bounced much better than their wind balls. These high-bouncing balls were made by the natives from a milky fluid, which was obtained by tapping certain trees. Similar to methods in Brazil, the milky fluid was then cured over the smoke of palm nuts to harden. Any discovery which improved ball games was quite noteworthy. A Spanish historian transcribed all that the governors of Haiti reported about the bouncing balls. Some 50 years later, another Spanish historian related that the natives of the Amazon Valley made shoes of this gum. Spanish soldiers soon learned to spread this gum on their cloaks to keep out the rain. Many years later, in 1736, a French astronomer in Peru brought home samples of the gum. He reported that the natives have various uses for it, including shoes, bottles, and bright lights which burn without a wick. This tree gum was also found helpful for another use, erasing pencil marks. The tree gum would rub out the pencil marks, so it was often called rubber. Shipmasters brought native shoes made from rubber to their home ports. The shoes were thick, clumsily shaped and heavy, but they sold. There was a demand for more. In a few years, half a million pairs were being imported annually. Around the year 1820, American merchantmen sometimes carried rubber as ballast on the home voyage and dumped it on the wharves at Boston. New England manufacturers bit against one another along the wharves for the rubber ballast and used it to make the popular rubber shoes. European vessels had also carried rubber samples, shoes, and bottles home. And experiments with rubber were being done in France and Britain. A Frenchman manufactured suspenders by cutting a native rubber bottle into fine threads and running them through a narrow cloth web. Charles Mackintosh, a Scottish chemist, created a raincoat by combining fabric with rubber that had been dissolved in a coal tar naphtha solution. Macintosh called his new raincoat a Macintosh, of course and began selling it successfully in 1824. These Macintosh raincoats have continued to sell well to this day. The company who sold them even changed their name to Macintosh in 2003 and opened their first fashion store in London in 2011. But let's get back to the early days of rubber. And first, the new business in rubber yielded profits. The cost of the raw rubber material was very low, and there was a high demand for rubber products. In Roxbury, Massachusetts, a firm created waterproof leather by treating leather rubber, turpentine, and lampblack. Initially, the process appeared to be a complete success. Large capital was invested to make waterproof leather shoes and clothing out of this new product. Merchants throughout the country placed orders for these goods, which, as it happened, were made and shipped in the winter. But when summer came, the huge profits of the manufacturers melted away. Literally, the beautiful garments decomposed in the summer heat. Loads of them, melting and running together, were being returned to the clothing factory in Roxbury. The returned items filled the warehouses with such noxious odors that they had to be taken outside in the middle of the night and buried deep in the ground. Remember the... Macintosh raincoats, they also had similar problems. Early versions of those rubber coats had problems with poor smell and a tendency to melt in hot weather. Not only did these rubber garments melt in the heat, but in severe cold, they stiffened to the rigidity of granite. Remember Daniel Webster, the lawyer At the start of this episode, he even reported having his own bad experiences with rubber garments. Quote. A friend in New York sent me a very fine cloak of India rubber and a hat of the same material. I did not have great success with them. I took the cloak and I set it out in the cold one day. It stood very well by itself. I put a hat on top of it, and many people passing by thought that they saw a person just standing there. End quote. The Roxbury manufacturers had come to realize that their process was worthless and that their great fortune was only a mirage. In 1834, Charles Goodyear entered the scene he appeared first as a customer in the company store in new york he bought a rubber life preserver he returned some weeks later with a plan for improving the tube the manager explained that the problem was not the tube but the rubber coating he stated to goodyear that fame and fortune awaited the inventor of a process that would keep rubber dry, firm, and flexible in all types of weather. Goodyear felt that he had a call from God. He was in the spirit of a crusader that Goodyear took up the problem of rubber. Perhaps, though, his drive and determination were more genetics or family business than divine. The father of Charles Goodyear was a pioneer in the manufacturing of American hardware. He had invented a steel hayfork, which replaced the heavier and more burdensome iron hayfork of the day. His father also manufactured the first pearl buttons in America and supplied metal buttons for troops during the War of 1812. Although Charles was a close companion of his father, his first vocational interest was the ministry. He later changed his mind and went to Philadelphia to learn the hardware business. After a while, he was a partner in a hardware firm established by his father in Philadelphia. The firm prospered for a while, but an improper extension of credit led to legal trouble. As a result, young Goodyear spent time in the debtor's prison in Philadelphia. But by this time, Goodyear had become fixated on trying to solve the problem of rubber. While in prison, he tried his first experiments with India rubber. The prison officials allowed him a bench and a marble slab. Luckily. The raw tree gum was quite cheap at that time. A friend procured him a few dollars' worth of gum, which sold then at five cents a pound. He also didn't need any expensive equipment. He worked the gum with his fingers and a rolling pin provided by his wife. He initially mixed the raw gum with magnesia and boiled it in lime to overcome the stickiness. From this concoction, he made some sheets of white rubber and some articles for further testing. His hopes were dashed when he found that weak acid, such as apple juice or vinegar, destroyed his new product. In 1836, he found that the application of nitric acid produced a curing effect on the rubber. This seemed like the result he was finally looking for. Finding a partner with capital, he leased an abandoned rubber factory on Staten Island. But his partner's fortune was swept away in the financial market panic of 1837. Later, he found another partner and started manufacturing in the deserted Roxbury rubber factory. He even had a product order from the government for a large number of mailbags. But by the time the goods were ready for delivery, the first bags made had rotted from their handles. It turned out that only the surface of the rubber had been cured. The nitric acid process had not solved the problem, but it had been a real step forward. In 1839, Goodyear accidentally discovered the true solution that cured the whole mass of gum, rather than just the surface. He was trying to harden the gum by boiling it with sulfur on his wife's stove when he let a lump of it fall on the red hot iron top. This was the secret to curing the gum all the way through. The process was later named Vulcanization, after Vulcan, the Greek god of fire and forge. Although this was a moment of key success, Goodyear's trials were only beginning. He had the secret at last, but few seemed willing to believe him or invest again in one of his rubber product ideas. Goodyear still in debt, so to get money he pawned or sold many of his relics, wares, and books. He even auctioned the school books of his children, but that only resulted in about five dollars. Goodyear approached everyone who had either a grain of faith in rubber or a little charity for a frail and penniless inventor. He accepted rent-free places to live, discounted barrels of flour for the family, and discounted barrels of rubber for himself. He also received permission to use a factory's ovens after hours and to hang his rubber over the steam valves while work went on. For the five years after his great discovery, He moved all over Massachusetts to pursue his dream. He went to Lynn, to Roxbury, to Woburn, to Boston, to Northampton, to Springfield, and to Naugatuck. When he lacked boat or railway fare to return to the place he was staying, he just begged shelter at some cottage or farm where a window lamp gleamed kindly. In 1844, Goodyear took out his first patent on his curing process. The following years had ups and downs for Goodyear, perhaps more downs than ups. One of his major problems was people claiming they were the inventors of vulcanized rubber. In fact, you may remember, I started this episode with the biggest challenge to his patent, the case of Goodyear vs. day. During that court case in 1852, Goodyear was 52 years old. He was emaciated and exhausted from disease, bitter disappointments, and wrongs. But due to the brilliance of his lawyer, Daniel Webster, the court sided with Goodyear and established him finally to be the sole inventor of vulcanized rubber. Although Goodyear died about eight years later, he was able to secure about 60 total patents on various methods and products related to rubber. During his lifetime, he was able to witness how his invention was applied to several hundred uses and give employment to 60,000 people. He also witnessed how his invention helped to produce $8 million worth of merchandise for other people. Many of these people amassed large fortunes. On the other hand, Goodyear died a poor man. But this didn't bother him. He was indifferent to money. He made his discoveries as a service to humankind. At least, this was what he expressed in his book, as he wrote here in the third person. Quote The advantages of a career in life should not be estimated exclusively by the standard of dollars and cents, as it is too often done. Man has just cause for regret when he sows and no one reaps. End quote. This is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed this spotlight episode of Calm History. To listen to some other podcasts that I've created, or to vote on the future of this podcast, just go to Podcasts. .com or use the link in the episode notes Take care